I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT Funding for lending, one year on. What has the impact been for savers and borrowers? Peer-to-peer lending, higher risks, but also higher rewards. And how the odds of winning on the premium bonds just got a bit lighter. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Tanya Poli. Hello. Elaine Moore. Hello. And our special studio guest, Giles Andrews, the founder of Zopa. Hello. Earlier this week, George Osborne met representatives of the banks, building societies and house builders to discuss the second phase of the controversial Help to Buy scheme. This will see the state guarantee a portion of mortgage loans in return for a yet-to-be-agreed fee from the lender and is due to start operating in January 2014. Loan sizes will run up to £600,000, but you'll have to be a UK resident with a credit history, buying a property to live in rather than to rent, and you won't be able to buy a second home. The government says the scheme will help those who can meet the monthly repayments of a mortgage, but who struggle to muster the large deposits needed. Critics say it will just inflate house prices still further and shut even more people out of the market. Some also question whether help to buy is even needed, given the impact that an earlier government scheme has already had. It is now almost a year since the Funding for Lending scheme was launched, designed to encourage banks to lend to small businesses and homeowners. Tanya Poli has been looking at its effects. Tanya, just to recap, what is Funding for Lending? How does it work? So Funding for Lending was introduced by sort of the Bank of England and the government last August. And it was its aim was really to start um, to try and encourage um, banks to lend to home buyers as well as small business owners. Um, and basically, it's 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 kind of achieved its kind of aim with um, the homeowner side of things. What we've seen is a, a mortgage rates kind of fall to record lows. We've seen more mortgages being offered now. Um, and it's actually helped on both sides. So it's it's helped a lot of buyers uh, have big deposits and lots of equity in their home. And it's actually started to filter through now to kind of the higher end of the, the, the mortgage market as well. And have there been any losers from Help to Buy? 
Yeah, savers have been the biggest losers, in fact. Um, what we've seen, I mean, this started way before the funding for lending scheme was even introduced. Um, savings rates have been falling, but it's really been heightened by the FOS launch last August. So we've seen savings rates fall um, on a one-year bond by about 1.11 percentage points. And that's a big fall for people who really need to kind of get some kind of income on their money. Um, when you look at sort of two-year, five-year um, fixed-rate bonds, they've had falls of about 1.5 percentage points over the last year. So it's really decimating the kind of income that a lot of savers can receive. So funding for lending has had the desired effect uh, in the mortgage market, but has it achieved its objectives in terms of small business lending? Not quite yet. I mean, this is part of the reason why the um, Bank of England in April actually announced an extension to the scheme. Um, It was originally only going to run until next year. Now it's going to be in place until 2015. And they really actually increased, they introduced a lot more kind of um, incentives for banks to actually lend lend specifically at small business owners. So kind of reduced rates, um, that type of thing. And I think it's a bit too early to see if the April change has actually had an impact yet, but I think the government's hoping that that will kind of start to feed through to small businesses. Um, but yeah, as it remains to be seen at the moment. So if you're a, a mortgage borrower, if you're looking for a mortgage, funding for lending has been great news. And now there is also this uh, help to buy scheme, which, is, which it seems has uh, injected a, a great deal more urgency into the mortgage market too. But if you're a saver, it's been pretty miserable. You mentioned that um, funding for lending ends in 2015. Is there any sort of ray of light on the horizon for, for savers um, looking for better rates on deposits? Um, potentially, it's it's hard to know. It's, it really depends on actually whether the banks will start to need to actually rely on those retail deposits because what's traditionally happened is that banks tend to um, sort of attract their retail deposits by high rates um, so that they can then lend them out on mortgages. But I guess... Um, the, the funding for lending scheme, when that disappears in 2015, that might help, um, might make banks a bit more competitive again. Um, but that really remains to be seen. I mean, for the help to buy mortgage scheme, I think a lot of the focus is going to be on the mortgage market at the moment. Um, it's worth noting that actually one of the risks, even though the mortgage, um, it's been great for mortgage um, holders at the moment. When the scheme goes in 2015, there is this concern that rates, um, that's when the Bank of England base rate might start to rise. So a lot of people who've been helped by the funding for lending scheme could start to see, could could actually have to remortgage at that time and they might try they might realize that their rates are suddenly a lot higher and they might not be able to afford it as much that's the one of the big concerns at the moment and finally just on help to buy the second phase the mortgage guarantee phase um, what what can we say about uh, the conversations that the chancellor had with the banks and building societies this week it seems there's not much extra detail there's not much i think a lot of it was um, a bit of a publicity um, stunt to make sure that they um to sort of say that they were still thinking about this scheme that's going to be launched in January 2014. Um, most of the details that came out were really to kind of um, really stress the point that it will only be available to borrowers that actually can afford the mortgage. It's not a way to help, you know, uh, people who are just cannot afford a mortgage. It's not going to be focusing on that kind of subprime part of the market. There's going to be every borrower that um, applies for a 95% mortgage or high low value mortgage will have to meet street income tests. They will have to go through stress testing. Um, it won't be available to anyone that has a, cre- a credit impaired history. Um, so I think the Chancellor really wanted to lay concerns that, um, that this wee way of kind of creating this property bubble where people who can't actually afford a mortgage will be given one. He wanted to kind of stress that, that wouldn't be the case. And I think also the reason of inviting house builders was to kind of um, show that the scheme um, will have some effect on stimulating the sort of supply of housing, even though a lot of critics will kind of poo-poo that. 
Thank you very much, Tanya. There's more on the impact of funding for lending in this weekend's FT Money. And you can also check the latest savings and mortgage rates in our databank tables. FT Money is available as part of the Weekend FT, or you can read via the FT's tablet apps, on Kindles and online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave us comments, you can do so online at the foot of articles or email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show, how the chances of a win on the premium bonds just got a little more remote. First, let's take a look at the quiet revolution that is peer-to-peer lending. This is where individuals can lend, either to other individuals or to companies, via an online intermediary who vets borrowers for credit risk. Five or six years ago, this sector was just a curiosity. But this year, P2P websites could extend over £400 million of credit to businesses and individuals, and some are predicting that within a few years that will grow to over a billion pounds. There is breathless talk of them replacing banks altogether in some areas of the market, and soon they are to be formally regulated for the first time, and the government has been openly supportive of the sector. The attraction to borrowers is obvious. Peer-to-peer lenders will extend credit at a time when banks have collectively pulled up the drawbridge. And for lenders, the interest rates are vastly better than those available on conventional savings accounts. But this is a young and still evolving sector, so there are still some substantial risks. Are the returns worth taking those risks? Elaine Moore has been investigating. Elaine, who are peer-to-peer lenders. They're not exactly household names yet, are they? They're not. With apologies to to Giles from Zopa, they're not household names and uh, they do attract a lot of interest. But this is still, as you said, a really young sector. It's less than a decade old. Quite a lot of the um, participants in it were set up 2009, 2008. Um, It's a post-credit crisis industry and if you compare it to high street banks it's it's extremely small what's interesting about it is the speed with which it's growing and what i find really fascinating are the champions behind it so as you said the british government is putting money behind this industry it's going to be regulated in 2014 google in the us has put money into the sector um you have there was a bank in the us that was quoted as saying this is the future of banks so there is um huge excitement about it but it is still a very small sector Um, and uh, and the companies within it do very different things, and this is where we can get into a sticky mess sometimes because there are very different companies offering very different um, services to individuals. So Giles Andrews from Zopa has come to join us. Giles, would you be able to explain what Zopa does and how that's different to what some of the other peer-to-peer lenders do? So Zopa is a peer-to-peer lender that's lending money to consumers. Um, We don't lend money to companies. We're about to lend money to consumers for business purposes. So there are three and a half million sole traders in this country. And we're working at the moment with some government help, as as you mentioned, um, towards launching a a product that will be lending money to sole traders um, for their for investment in their business. So in the UK, it's it's mainly split between the peer-to-peers where it's individual lenders lending to individual borrowers and then it's individual lenders lending to businesses. But in the US, it's quite different again, isn't it? So in the US, um, most of the lending is actually done by institutions. So um, and, and, and Lending Club, which is the biggest US player, announced that a bank was lending um, or a couple of banks were, were prepared to lend. And I think that really comes from the fact that when those businesses started, they, um, not to put too fine a point of it, they made a bit of a mess of their early credit decisions and um, reputations are easily lost in this world um, and, and it, 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 the consumers um, were not keen to lend on the platforms. So they didn't really have a lot of choice um, and they pursued um, institutional funds very aggressively 
and and these businesses really are acting as if you like uh, intermediaries between an institution that wants to lend typically a hedge fund although as we said some banks are beginning to 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 use them as well with with consumers um, they're not currently lending to businesses although I, I believe that they have plans to do so and the FT actually recently reported that Santander is in talks with one UK peer-to-peer, or peer-to-business rather, lender. Do you think that in the UK there might be more institutional lending and that might grow the sector? I, I think that there's certainly institutional demand to lend on these platforms. Um, um, we have, we're have we in the fortunate position in the UK, uh, and we've been going since 2005, so, so just before the credit crisis, um, that we've actually done a remarkably good job in managing credit risk, um, and therefore we haven't made the mistake that the US platforms did. Um, so our platforms are exclusively funded by retail consumers, um, and, and I think it's a great thing that the platforms are predominantly funded by consumers, because at the end of the day, it's in the title, fear to fear, does tend to imply some, some consumer. Um, there is institutional demand, um, and I think it'd be interesting to see how that plays out over time. And part of the reason that the peer-to-peer industry has grown so fast is because it's online, I think. It's because it's it's easy to access. You don't need to go into a branch in order to open an account. Does that mean that the industry is only really useful for tech-savvy individuals? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think um, we've we've gone way beyond the point where you have to be tech savvy to use the internet. Um, so the average age of our lenders is now in the fifties uh, and is going up steadily. Um, I think you know if we look at our parents, they're all uh, far more web savvy than than they were ten years ago. Um, so so no, I don't think there's any sort of technological barrier to the use. But but you're right in saying that we are online, and we think that gives us enormous advantages in terms of cost. One of the issues that we keep talking about though is regulation, and so the uh, the industry won't be regulated until next year when somebody is lending money on the on the site what are the risks that they're that they're running so so we've been calling for regulation for four or five years i think the, the government were always amused that we were the first industry if you like that came came to government knocking on the door saying we'd like to be regulated and perhaps that made them take us quite seriously because it was a rather unusual request so we're delighted they've agreed to do so and but even the regulation i think will cement the working practices that the responsible players in the industry have codified already so we formed a trade association a couple of years ago setting out how we believed this activity should be done responsibly and i don't believe for a second the regulator simply going to copy and paste our, our text but i think they're they're going to draw some um they're going to draw something from it um so i don't think actually regulation will make us operate terribly differently and importantly it won't remove the risk so so the risk in in peer to peer lending is you're lending money to people who may not repay you and I think that's made abundantly clear on all the platforms so our job is to make sure that that happens as little as possible and within the expectations that we set for you and you know we won't get FSCS guarantees when we're regulated because we don't take deposits and and therefore we shouldn't uh, be subject to those guarantees so I think all the regulation will do is it will ensure that um, in order to perform this activity um, any people will have to behave uh, to the standards that some of the players already are, uh, which, I, which I welcome. I think is a very good thing. Thank you, Elaine, and thank you very much to Giles Andrews, the founder of Zopa, which is one of the biggest players in the peer-to-peer sector. P2P lending is our cover feature this week. We look in more detail at exactly how it works and highlight some of the quirkier things that it is helping to finance. On to our final item for today. Earlier this week, National Savings and Investments announced its financial results for the year to the end of March, and with it came a sting in the tail for owners of premium bonds. These are still one of the UK's most popular financial products. Over £44 billion is tied up in them. They don't pay interest as such, but holders are entered into a monthly prize draw. 
There is a big prize of a million pounds, plus lots of smaller prizes, and the winnings are not taxable. Because NSNI is owned by the government, any capital you invest in premium bonds is 100% secure. However, the chances of winning those prizes have been getting slimmer over the years, and they just got slimmer still. Elaine Moore is still with me. She met the head of NSNI recently and has been following the story. Elaine, what has happened this week? So what's happened is that the uh, the interest, the equivalent rate of interest that's paid out on the pool of money that's uh, gathered for in premium bonds has been cut. So premium bonds are quite a weird product. It's a good job that so many people hold them and therefore know how they work because trying to explain them to people who don't have them is quite difficult. They're sort of like a savings account and a national lottery all rolled up into one. So you don't earn interest. You hold a premium bond and every month a, a lottery is, is drawn and so certain premium bonds win prizes. The way that the prizes are handed out is uh, calculated by taking the amount of money that's held in premium bonds and saying that there is a rate of interest. So at the moment, it's 1.3%. It used to be 1.5%. And that money is pooled and it's a prize fund and it's split up and handed out each month. Okay, so that's effectively, they decide how much they're going to pay out in prize money and they've cut the the prize pool effectively. Do you think uh, that was, was that a big surprise or was this kind of obvious that this was coming? Unfortunately, it's been on the cards for a little while. So National Savings and Investments has already cut the returns on quite a lot of its products. Um, Premium bonds were one of the few that it hadn't cut yet. So we had a, a fairly good idea that this would happen at some point. It's quite a substantial cut. It means that you now have a 1 in 26,000 chance of winning a prize. Before it was a 1 in 24,000 chance, so it's quite a significant drop. Do you think this will dent the popularity of premium bonds? I mean, millions of people uh, hold these things, but we've just been hearing that you can get perhaps much better rates through things like peer-to-peer lending, for instance. I really don't, uh, which is sort of surprising because you would expect that usually if you cut returns, then then you would cut the number of people who are interested in your product. But people hold premium bonds for slightly different reasons to the reasons that they might hold savings accounts or or other investment products. Um, The fact that you have quite a good chance of not winning anything at all means that people must be fairly comfortable with the idea of not receiving a regular return from the money. So this has cut the chance of you receiving a return, but perhaps you, you know, you've barely received anything anyway. I also think that a lot of people hold premium bonds because the returns are tax-free and because they're completely protected. That's one of the biggest reasons. So you don't have this £85,000 per person if the institution fails limit. NSNI is backed by the Treasury. It's the government's savings account. It, it cannot fail unless the government fails and the government takes all the money to the Bahamas. And broadly speaking, do do premium bonds actually make sense as a financial product? I can see that people like the idea of them being a bit of a flutter and maybe you might win a million pounds, although the chances of that are clearly very remote. Um, But do they they make sense in other terms as well? Well, as Tanya was saying earlier, the rates on savings accounts and long-term savings bonds are so poor now that actually the case of premium bonds has got a bit more compelling, even with this reduction in rate. Um, the fact that you don't pay tax is is 
very attractive. The fact that they're protected is attractive. And that means that if you have a lump sum that you're going to hold for a certain period of time, then premium bonds can be quite a good place to hold it. You can take the money out again without too much fuss and you won't you won't have to sacrifice these returns that you may not have even got in order to do that. Um, so I think that not only are they popular still with grandparents for new babies and parents as a way to save for their children, I think they have grown in popularity with higher rate taxpayers, people who sell a house and need somewhere to put the money for a while. This is why premium bonds are quite a good product. Thank you very much, Elaine. More on this subject in this weekend's FT Money and other top money stories this weekend, how the retail distribution review is progressing, the prospect of paying just to own a credit card, and the Treasury is castigated over its administration of equitable life compensation payments. And finally, the latest figures for ISAs and junior ISAs are out. Are they truly fit for a prince, we ask? We're always happy to hear your views too. You can add comments at the foot of articles on our website or you can email us directly. The address once again is money at ft.com. Don't forget, you can also read about money online throughout the week at ft.com forward slash money, where you'll also find blog posts and useful tools like our pension calculator and the latest annuity rates. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Elaine, Tanya and our special guest Giles Andrews of SOPA. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.